Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. Every week, this podcast navigates a new topic through interviews with the most disruptive minds in sustainability, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you can use in your life, no matter your background. My name is Anna. I'm an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today we'll be talking about the impact of resource efficiency and sustainability on the resilience of the business with Patricio Gonzalez Morel, a sustainability and resource efficiency consultant for the hotel, service, and manufacturing industries. He's currently based in Dubai. I'm beyond grateful and excited Patricio joins us today at Sustainability Explored as someone with 25 years of, a, of practical experience in the field. He will certainly provide tons of values to the listeners of this show. I can't wait to start our interview, anticipating a lot of tips and tricks on how to actually optimize business operations with sustainability in mind. Before we jump to our chat, you can use this moment to subscribe to the podcast to always be one step ahead with the sustainability news across countries and industries. All right, are you ready? Let's jump right into it. Hi, everyone. I'm super excited to have a guest today in my virtual studio. My guest today is Patricio Gonzalez Morel. He was once a listener of the, and still is, I hope, of uh, Sustainability Explored podcast. You were a friend of Lorena, right? We recorded an episode with her on sustainable finance. And since then, we also connected on LinkedIn. We chatted a little bit. And today we're coming up with the topic that we want to explore extensively as much as the, our time and energy allows. We will be talking about the impact of energy and resource efficiency and sustainability on the resilience of business. Patricio, please introduce yourself a little bit more for the listeners. How did you get into sustainability? How did you start your path? And what's your background overall? Well, Anna, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. My story is as follows. I'm a, I'm a mechanical and environmental engineer, and I specialize in resource efficiency. So basically, resource efficiency consists in helping businesses pollute less and earn more by increasing the efficiency with which they use water, energy, materials, and chemicals in their operation. So this is a big part of sustainability, but it's not the whole of sustainability. In the simplest form, what I try to do and people who do my work when we try to do is to show businesses how they can do more with less or at least how they can do the same with a lot less. So I've been doing this work for 23 years now and over that period of time I've had incredible luck to conduct resource efficiency assessments, detailed assessments in more than 400 facilities in, I think, 30 or 35 countries around the world. So when I started doing this work, this was in the middle 1990s. I was working mainly with uh, food processing and manufacturing plants. And that was a wonderful experience because each new process, each new plant was like a brand new experience. It was a, it was a wonderful adventure. So 
in food processing, I, I worked with just about everything. So milk, cheese, wine, beer, rum, Coca-Cola, olive oil, cane sugar. Those are the nice ones. Oh, I also worked with fruit packing with the melon, pineapples in Costa Rica. And then I worked with some of the ones which are a little bit less pleasant, such as slaughterhouses, meat packing plants, and poultry processing. Some plants, some processes are nicer than others, but still the experience was truly wonderful. And in manufacturing plants, there also I had the chance to, to work with a lot of different plants and a lot of different wonderful processes like uh, textile mills, dye houses, uh, tanneries. I worked with a whole lot of tanneries, foundries, metal plating, paint manufacturing, marble tile and then the funnest factory that i've ever been to which was a zipper factory you know the zippers that you have in your pants and, wow. and shirts and you know i'm an engineer so for me it was a wonderful adventure and every single one of these projects was reminded me of a field trip you know when you're a little kid in, in high school and they take you to the local chocolate or cookie factory and they show you how everything works well that's more or less how it was for me just that in that case, I got to spend a week in the plant and, and learn everything I could and ask them for any question that popped to my mind, whether they were good questions or bad questions, and ask them for data and measuring things left and right. It was really a wonderful, wonderful experience and a wonderful adventure. And then after doing that for a couple of years, the consulting firm that I was working with, this was a consulting firm that was based in Washington, D.C., won uh, a contract to run pollution prevention project in Jamaica. Back in those days, the term sustainability hadn't been invented yet. Uh, so it was called either pollution prevention or cleaner production. And in Jamaica, one of the biggest industries is the hotel industry. So we started working with hotels. And over the span of about five years, we uh, conducted a detailed, very detailed pollution prevention or resource efficiency assessments in about 40 hotels, big ones, small ones, very, very nice ones, not so nice ones. And it was an amazing experience because what happens is that if you do anything many, many times, you do become very good at it. And not only that, but also that the project that I was working with had very deep pockets. And so when we did these assessments, they deployed a pretty big team uh, to look at everything in these properties. So generally it was uh, groups of four or five engineers parachuting into these properties. And so we had one person that just looked at energy, another one that just looked at water and wastewater, another one that just looked at waste and, and chemicals, uh, another one that just looked at operations. And sometimes we had another one just to help out wherever was needed or kind of run the whole show. So after working in Jamaica for, for many years, we expanded and we started working in the greater Caribbean. Also, we worked all over the Latin America and we won a wonderful project to do the same type of work on the Red Sea coast in Egypt. And yes, by that time, I think I'd worked with 100, 150 properties. And six years ago, I moved to Singapore and I started working in Southeast Asia, obviously Singapore, but also Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, lately in Laos, which is 
absolutely a, a wonderful, a wonderful place. How did you decide to stay or did hotels choose you in a way or you decided to go with the path of hotel sustainability in a broader terms? Working with hotels is very easy because first of all, there are hotels all over the world and in any city, you, you always have 10, 20, 30, 100. I live in Dubai now, so there are hundreds and hundreds of potential clients. Whereas if I had to specialize in, in poultry processing um, plants or zipper factories, you know, I, I would have maybe one country per region and therefore it would be a lot more difficult to work. I, I love the work that I do. I still love working with factories because it is a lot more exciting than working with buildings and, and hotels. I mean, hotels are charming in a way. Working in a beautiful hotel doesn't feel like work. But um, the advantage of working with a factory is that every single time you, you work with a new process, it's a whole new world that opens to you. And, and you go in there without knowing very much about the process. I mean, I always try to do my best to, to learn as much as I can about the process before I go. But still, you know, for instance, before I went to Costa Rica to work in a pineapple packing plant, I had never seen one and I didn't really know what they did. So when you go there, you, the first day you're totally lost, but then very quickly you kind of figure things out, especially if the process is like very physical, where you can follow the process from beginning to end. You know, it doesn't just takes you know, an hour to more or less understand how things work. And what is amazing with this kind, kind of work is that even though you know absolutely nothing about how to pack melons or pineapples or how to make leather, or how to make Coca-Cola or wine or rum or cheese or sausages or how to kill a chicken. I mean, my job is not to go there to show them how to pack a better melon or how to make a better zipper. My job is just to look for opportunities for them to do the job that they do now, but to do it with fewer resources while using less water, while using less energy, fewer chemicals, fewer raw materials, and also, or very often, reducing the losses of product. I mean, you worked in a lot of factories where you would be surprised to see how much stuff, almost finished products, gets, gets wasted almost uselessly. I mean, I, and, and, and I call it like the curse of, of excess. When you're in a factory where you're surrounded by millions of sausages, the sausages stop having value to you. And so if a few of them fall to the floor, you just don't really think about it. And all of that, you know, it's loss of profit and also it just produces waste. Right. What does it take to be a professional like you to kind of encompass all those industries? You come, yesterday you were in the pineapple packaging plant, tomorrow you were in the Coca-Cola or another beverage the day after that, leather. How do you deal with that complexity? How do you train your observation skills, you know, this muscle? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a job that you have to learn doing it. Actually, I think that now you have a lot of universities that offer courses in sustainability. No, I don't think that you have too many universities that offer courses in sustainability in sausage or zipper factories. But 
the, the thing is that, again, you know, you don't have to be an expert in, you know, how to make a zipper. You just have to be good at knowing where the problems could be, where the waste could be generated. And you have to be curious and you have to be willing to, to look at things uh, in, in enough detail and with enough curiosity to be able to, to, to identify places where they have problems, where there's waste that could be eliminated. And actually, very often, especially when you work with factories, the fact that you don't know the process at all is it, it plays in your favor because you go there with no preconceived notions. And, and since you don't know the process at all, you can ask all of the stupid questions that probably the people who work in the industry, maybe they've had those questions, but they never dared to ask them because they imagined that you know, if they are asked such a stupid questions, they would get fired. Whereas for me, when I start working, when I, when I go in and work in a plant, you know, I meet with the engineers and with the GM or with the owner and I tell them, look, you know, I know absolutely nothing about hot sauces or rum or Coca-Cola or cheese. But then again, I'm not here to show you how to do your job, you know, how to produce a better product that is not my expertise. I'm here to help you do your job, but do it more efficiently by using your resources more, more, more effectively. By being so clueless, you can find amazing things. Just to give you an example, I, mean, I was hoping to, work, to talk more about hotels, but I see that we're getting a little bit sidetracked. We will get back. We will get back to the hotels. Just to give you an example, I went to work in a pineapple packing plant in Costa Rica, and I was going to spend a week there. And I had been to other packing, fruit packing plants, and the process is just amazingly simple because they take the fruits from the field, they dump them in a big vat, like a big swimming pool full of water to you know, remove some of the dirt. Then they put it on a conveyor belt. Then they kind of straighten them out so that they are nice, nicely laid out on the conveyor belt. Then you apply to them a couple of products. One of them is like this waxy, waxy liquid to prevent them from losing water while they're being shipped. Then they apply a little bit of insecticide in the crown and in the back just to kill any bug that could have survived the, the swim in the pool. And then it's the, they kind of blow off the excess product and then it just goes on the line where they get sorted by size. They put them in boxes and then they put the boxes in cold room and then they pack them and they ship them abroad. So the, the process is so simple that I was really worried when I got there and I was wondering like, what, what the hell am I going to find here? On top of that, this was a plant that sold its fruit to Chiquita, which is a fruit company that has been in the pineapple business for probably a century. And since they were selling their products to Chiquita, they had Chiquita engineers, like these are fruit packing specialists, pineapple experts coming in on a weekly basis to make sure that everything was working. So I was saying to myself, like, what the hell am I going to find here? And what I found was amazing. I mean, I'm not going to go into detail, but what I found was so simple and the waste was so enormous and the solution was ridiculous. They, they were able to put in place this solution in less than a day with probably less than $50. And it allowed them to reduce the amount of this waxy liquid that was being dragged out on this conveyor belt into the processing plant and then it would just kind of dribble on the floor uh, and get totally lost. What was the problem? So basically, the, the pineapples would 
travel on this conveyor belt and then it would pass under this cascade of this this product that looked like milk and it had the viscosity of milk and it would bathe the, the pineapples as they were passing and so this liquid was applied to the fruit in order to prevent it from uh, losing water during shipping and while it was in the supermarkets. Uh, but then there was too much liquid on the pineapples and if this liquid stayed on the pineapples and it went into the packing place, it would keep on dripping and then you would be losing this product which was uh, quite valuable and also it was contaminating because if it fell on the floor, it would end up getting washed down when they would clean the plant at the end of the day and then it would end up, you know, you would have to treat it. Mm -hmm. So they had found all kinds of mechanisms in order to remove the excess waxy liquid from the fruit. So they would, this conveyor belt was not like the typical, it was a conveyor belt made of rollers. So after the pineapples went under this cascade, the rollers would start spinning and then the pineapple would start kind of rolling and so it would kind of spin off the excess liquid and then they also had blowers that would blow air onto the pineapples to kind of blow away the excess product and so there wasn't really much much more you could do that way and still they would lose quite a bit they were so concerned about the product that was on the pineapple nobody had ever looked at the product that was on the conveyor belt and on the bottom of the rollers so you had these rollers that helped the, the, the and the rollers were about, you know, 10, 10 centimeters thick, so they were pretty big. But underneath it, I mean, obviously, all of, the, all of the liquid that would kind of run down the pineapple, that would get spun off the pineapple, blown off the pineapple, it would kind of get on the surface of these metal rollers, and then it would form these little drops at the bottom of the rollers. So what I did is that I was kind of looking around, trying to find a way to make this process better. And then I looked under the rollers, uh, under the conveyor belt, and then I could see on all of the rollers, there, were these, there was this liquid being dragged out and there were little drops and then the drops would fall. Yeah. And not only that, but the roller, the, the conveyor belt would go towards the packing place and then it would come back to the origin. So you were losing this product this product would go on the first roller, then it would dribble on the next roller. So basically, you were dragging out the solution in both directions. So the solution was just put a little brush. It was like a broom that would kind of scrape the bottom of these rollers, but very, very gently. And just by touching these drops, the liquid would go get on the brush, and then it would be collected in a pan. Yeah. As easy as that. Optimization. Yeah. But what, what, is, what really struck me about this, and, and then when I came up with this idea, the Chiquita engineers were like, oh my God, how is it possible? We have never seen this. You know? And yeah, I mean, what happened is that they, they had always looked at this line the same way, but it was the first time that I looked at this plant. So I figured, let me look underneath to see what happens. And then that is where I uncovered that basically it was more than half of the liquid that was being lost was not being lost because there was too much on the pineapple, because there was too much of it on the roller. And then in order to eliminate it, you just had to brush yeah. that product off. And then you could recover it. Oh, by the way, and then the product that was recovered from this cascade and from these brushes would go back to the top of the cascade and it would be reused. It was like a closed, a closed loop. 
Yeah, close cycle. Well, definitely, you know, one would, uh, one would say it's a beginner's luck, but at the same time, connecting this story to the question I asked, like, how do you encompass all of that? You're coming from, in a way, a very privileged position where your questions and your solutions will not be judged. As you said, someone else would be fired, but you're like, oh, sorry, potentially dumb question. Why are you doing it this way? Uh, that's a card, you know, it's a, it's a joker. Yeah, I think that definitely not knowing, not being an expert. I mean, if you're a really true blue expert, perhaps it helps, but not knowing anything about the process kind of helps as well. But also, I think that one of the advantages of doing this in many different types of industry is that you end up finding similar problems in totally different industries. So like, for instance, something that I saw in a tannery, you know, there's, there's kind of a similar problem in, let's say, like a rum factory. But, but the thing is that in the tannery, they figured out a way to solve it. But in the rum factory, they haven't. But basically, you are, the, you are like the pollinating bee. You know, you're the one who can say, oh, I've seen this one. And this is how they solved it there. And, and so you could probably apply the same. Right. Yeah, sometimes I feel, especially when I work with industries, I, I feel like I'm a little bit like a pollinating bee. That is more <laughs> Okay, let's now get back to your, to your work in the hotel sphere. What is it exactly that you do in terms of energy and resource efficiency there? Okay, so basically what I do is that I conduct uh, resource efficiency assessments. And, and these assessments, it consists in, you know, you go on site, you look at the uh, facilities, the equipment, at the operations in, in, in a hotel or in a business, and you basically look for opportunities to cut waste and to improve the efficiency with which they use their resources in their facility and operations. So right now, I mean, I started off doing this work uh, in industry, uh, like manufacturing plants, food processing plants, but by now that's a much, much smaller percentage of all of the work that I do. As of now, probably 75% of the work that I, I do is in the hotel industry. But in any case, I mean, resource efficiency, I know I'm going to be talking a lot about hotels because that is truly my specialty right now. But this is something that applies to all industries, whatever, whatever it is. It can be, you know, hotels, it can be factories, but it can also be schools, hospitals, uh, shops, and, and even something as, as simple as, as homes. So I don't really care where the savings come from. I know that a lot of people are very concerned about energy efficiency because, you know, there's a direct link between the energy that we consume and CO2 emissions. But as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I, I don't really care whether the efficiency gain come from energy, water, materials, or, or chemicals. It can be something as complicated as, you know, finding a way to operate a big air conditioning or hot water system more efficiently, or it could be something as simple and as mundane as you know, finding a way for housekeepers to reduce the number of plastic bags that they use to collect rubbish or dirty linens from guest rooms. You know? So as far as I'm concerned, anything goes because you know, whether you save energy or plastic bags, at the end of the day, you are doing the right thing for, for the environment. Now, my specialty is the proverbial low-hanging fruits. So these are basically improvements that are relatively straightforward, so nothing overly complicated. But these are improvement measures that are quick to, quick to implement. 
So it's not something that you need to plan for months or years on how to do it. These are things that can very often be done in the same day or in a week or certainly in a month. These are improvement measures that are generally not very expensive at all. So even if you don't have a lot of money, it doesn't really matter. There's still many, many things that you can do. And then these are also improvement measures that are enormously cost-effective. And by enormously cost-effective, I mean investments that yield a return on investment that typically range from, at the very least, 100% up to 10,000% and even more. Everybody knows or has kind of a general idea of what a return on investment is, but I just want to make it clear. An investment that has a return on investment of 100% basically allows you to double your money over the life of the investment. And an investment or a measure that has a return on investment of 10,000% allows you to recover your investment 100 times over the life of, of the investment, which is absolutely enormous. And so just to put this in, in perspective, because like 10,000% is such an enormous number that it's kind of important to kind of put your feet on the ground and, and, and really understand what this means. The money that I have in the bank just gives me a return on investment of 1% per year, 1% per year. Now the S&P 500, which is one of the indices that measures the performance of the U.S. stock market, in 2019, it it would have given you a return on investment of 6% over the course of the full year, 6%. If you had been lucky enough to invest in a company that's called Coty Inc., which is a company that I think manufactures cosmetics, in 2019, that investment would have given you a return on ROI of, of 100%. So basically, even in the best of cases, uh, the U.S. stock market performs just as well as the least cost-effective of the measures that I identify in the places where I work. And it's not just, I'm not the only one who does this work, but other people who look in, uh, who work in resource efficiency and, uh, and sustainability in the hotel industry. So basically, the work that I do beats the stock market, even the best stock in the U.S. stock market, by a long shot. So very often I hear people and you hear politicians all the time saying on television that, you know, it's impossible to invest too much in, in sustainability because we, you know, it's going to break the economy. I have to, you know, hold on to the chair in order to stop my, myself from falling over. And, and I wonder, like, who advises these people? How is it possible that something which is not just very cost effective, but enormously cost-effective is widely viewed as something that is a chore or an obligation and certainly not as something that you do because it's going to allow you to make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's crazy. <laughs> the economy is going to collapse because of your sustainability actions. Yeah, it, it, it truly is crazy. And what happens is that people who do my kind of work, we've known this for 20 years, I mean, I've been doing this work for 23 years, and out of the 400 businesses where I've worked, so these would be you know, factories and all the way to hotels, hospitals, and, and whatever, I've never come across a place where there were no huge opportunities to improve, and to improve just by picking these low-hanging fruits. The impact of this work is truly enormous. It's truly enormous. 
And so just to give you an, ex uh, an example, a couple of months ago, I conducted a study to measure the impact of resource efficiency on the performance of hotels. And what I did is that I looked at five off-the-grid boutique hotels that I'd worked with in Southeast Asia. So these were, so off-the-grid means in remote locations. So basically they would be either in the middle of the jungle or a small island in the middle of nowhere. And so these off-the-grid properties, they work a little bit like mini cities. They have to produce their own electricity. They have to produce their own water. They have to treat their own wastewater. They have to deal with their own waste. And so the, the, the five properties that I looked at, they were pretty much equivalent in many ways, you know, same quality, same number of stars, approximately the same uh, room rate. I think that the room rate normally ranged between $350 and $500 per room uh, per day, which is, so these weren't cheap hotels. Huh? And so four of these properties were conventional hotels. I mean, and what I mean by conventionals is that, I mean, they were certainly very, very nice and, and, and wonderful, but they were similar to the hotels that we're all familiar with. So you had brick and, brick and mortar rooms. Generally, they were like standalone villas, little houses. The rooms were air-conditioned. You had a TV in your room. You had a mini bar, and all of the conventional uh, amenities that you would expect to have in, in a hotel. And also one of the things that these four properties have in common is that they really didn't go out of their way to be more sustainable or more energy efficient or you know, resource efficient. Now, the fifth hotel is very different and incredibly special. This is a small hotel, 15 villas. It's called Nikoi Island, and it's located about 100 kilometers away from Singapore. And it happens to be one of my favorite hotels in the world. I, I had the, the great luck of, of working there on and off for a number of years. So I got to know it quite well. And every single time I went there, even if I was going there for work, it was always a pleasure. So Nikoi is, is very special for many reasons. First of all, it was built about 10 or 15 years ago, I, I forget. But it was designed and built to be of very, very low impact, very, very sustainable, very environmentally, environmentally friendly. So the villas have a very open architecture. There are no windows. There are almost no walls. You still, it's designed in a way that you still have your privacy, but basically you just have the sea breezes running through the rooms night and day. I will ask you to stop, right? Because <laughs> earlier when you spoke about the pineapple, <laughs> I, was, I already felt the taste of the pineapple in my mouth. Now, all this hotel stuff, I'm going to go on vacation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is really a wonderful place. So basically, the architecture was fantastic. Since it was an open architecture, so obviously you didn't have air conditioning. Also, it was very basic. So no TV, no minibar. Uh, they had solar water heaters. They have photovoltaic panels to produce part of the energy that is consumed uh, by the island. They harvest rainwater, and then the rainwater is used throughout the island after it's treated. So it's a very simple property, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And also, it's 
enormously laid back and relaxing. When you come off the boat and you step on the island, you just feel the stress melting. So not only is it designed well and they have the right equipment and the right stuff, but also it's operated in a way to minimize its impact on, on the surrounding environment. So they measure everything. So not only do they measure the total amount of water and the total amount of electricity that is produced by, by the systems, but they also have submeters that allow them to see where the water and where the energy is used, and they keep track of it almost on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, they do track it on a, on, on a daily basis. They, they put that information into a, into a dashboard that allows them to immediately spot where there are like strange changes in consumption that would indicate a problem. And as soon as they identify a problem, they investigate, and if they do find a problem, they fix it. They compost, obviously, all of their yard waste and the organic waste that you know, uh, comes on their beach. They, have, um, they use worms and also black soldier flies in order to get rid of their food waste and to transform that you know, very dirty, messy food waste into protein that can then be used to feed fish and, and chicken. They recycle just about everything. They do everything they possibly can in order to reduce and minimize the amount of waste uh, they produce. And the little they produce, they find a way to recycle it. They started uh, a farm on a nearby island about two years ago, I think. And now this farm produces a lot of the fruit and the vegetables that they produce. They also have uh, chickens that give them most of the eggs. So it's a wonderful kind of not fully closed system, but you know, they are definitely they're definitely moving in the right direction. So this this wonderful property is extremely efficient but also extremely profitable. Because what I was able to do is that in this study, what I, what I did is that I, I have the information for these five properties and I calculated how much water and how much electricity they consume per guest per day and yeah. to see how they compare to each other. And what this study revealed is that Nikoi consume 10 times less energy and half as much water as its closest competitor. And it consumed 25 times less energy and five times less water than its least efficient competitor. So the difference between a place like Nikoi and the others is beyond big. It's definitely pulling towards the enormous. Thanks to the fact that Nikoi was very efficient in the way it used its water and energy, uh, this property was able to reduce its operating costs by $10,000 per room per year compared to its closest competitor. And since most of these savings didn't require much effort because just a place was designed to run efficiently, most of that went straight into profits. And when you can consider that the average profit margin in the hotel industry is 5%. This means that if instead of relying on efficiency, Nikoi had tried to achieve this additional profit through conventional ways, either by uh, selling more staff, increasing occupancy, selling more food, wine, whatever, they would have had to raise their revenue by $200,000 per room per year which is equivalent to 
dollars per room per day, which is a totally impossible feat. So just by being efficient, they were able to increase their profits enormously. And another thing that I need to add is that these were savings that were just achieved by water and energy efficiency. But since they were doing many, many, many other things, I have a feeling that you know, their true blue savings were significantly greater than just $10,000 per room per year. And what I like about this example is not only shows you the enormous impact that sustainability can have on your profit, but it also shows you that sustainability and profitability can go hand in hand extremely well. Why do you think the other four hotels didn't do the same? What, what is the major difference? Management, lack of understanding of things? When I started doing this work 23 years ago, and I saw that these weren't hotels, but they were factories, and, and I saw that there was just so much waste and so little attention to details, I was really flabbergasted. And then I would come back from these trips and then I would meet up with my colleagues or with my friends. And I had one friend who was um, very, very skeptical. He's always been very, very skeptical. And he would tell me, well, Patricio, you know, you know, I cannot believe what you're saying because what, do you think these people are stupid? You know, you don't know anything about how to make a hot dog or a Coca-Cola or a piece of cheese. And these guys have been doing that for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And you go in there and you find all of these opportunities and you show them how to do better. And uh, actually, when he would tell me this, I didn't know how to answer because obviously these people are not stupid. Because, I mean, they do things which are very complicated. They do a lot of things that I would never be able to do. But somehow they were missing something very, very important. And so over all of these years that I've been doing this work, I've always had in the back of my mind, you know, why is this happening? Why is this happening? How is this possible? How is this possible? There are many reasons for it, and I will get to it in, in this presentation. But before getting to it, I kind of have to give another example that I think is very important. Sure, sure. In the example of that you just said, in the example of uh, Nikoi Hotel, that's how the, the hotel was constructed and designed and built in the first place. That's understandable. So someone in the beginning, the designer, the architect thought of the construction certain way. So it's sort of easy to, to implement resource efficiency in that case. What can be possible? What would be the sort of solutions, set of solutions for those hotels that are already built? I mean, what happens is that obviously it's easier to be super efficient if you've designed the hotel to be that way to begin with. However, you know, you can still achieve some pretty impressive results even in conventional hotels. Perhaps, I know, certainly the savings won't be as enormous, but they would still be, you know, interesting and impressive enough. By now, I think I've conducted these assessments in 400 businesses total, but it's about 300 hotels. Of course, it's a lot easier to achieve these enormous savings and gains if the property was designed right to begin with. But it is possible to achieve very big improvements, even in conventional hotels that weren't designed to be efficient from the start. So the results may be a little bit less, but they will still be impressive. 
So my experience is that by now I've done, I've, I've done these resource efficiency assessments in about 300 hotels. And as a rule of thumb, or at least my rule of thumb, is that unless the properties were designed to be sustainable or are really operated to be sustainable, but that the property has really made a big effort to achieve greater sustainability, if that hasn't happened, then in most cases, you can reduce their utility consumption, so it's water and energy consumption, by 25% by, by putting in place these very simple measures, these low-hanging fruits. And in many cases, the savings can actually be much greater than that. So I'd like to give you, just to illustrate this point, is one example of, of a hotel that I've been working with recently. For the past two years, I've been working on a project that's funded by the German government, the GIZ, which is the German International Development Agency, to improve sustainability performance in hotels in Laos. And over the time, we conducted these resource efficiency assessments in about 50 properties. So the idea is look at the, again, uh, facilities, equipment, operations. We give them recommendations and also we help them implement whatever measures it is that they want to put in place. The star performer of this project is a 60-room property that's located in Luang Prabang, which is a beautiful old city in North Laos. This is a 60-room hotel, very nice, and it is run by a gentleman whose name is Mr. Ku, who is an extremely smart, proactive, and forward-thinking hotelier. So when we finished the assessment at this property, and this assessment was just an assessment that lasted only one day, the, the next day he was already there putting in place a lot of the improvement measures that we had proposed. And then over the next few months, he proceeded to implement almost all of the recommendations that we had, that we had proposed. So much so, that in the span of four months, he managed to reduce his energy consumption by 40% and his water consumption by 30% in four months from start to finish. This is a really amazing achievement. But just to put this in perspective, you have to consider that, for instance, in 2015, European Union established an energy efficiency target for its member properties. And the efficiency target was to reduce the energy consumption of the member states by 30% in 15 years. 30% in 15 years, the Sala Prabang in Laos managed to reduce its energy consumption by 40% in four months. So basically, the Sala Prabang blew the European Union out of the water when it comes to energy efficiency gain. With the savings that he was able to achieve, Basically, he's going to be able to cover the salary of six of his line staff, like six housekeepers, from now on forever. So he will have them for free. In order to achieve these gains, he spent $40, $40 US per room. And he recovered that investment in two months, which means that in the span of a, of a year, if he had invested, let's say, $1,000, he would have recovered $6,000. And this is something that, you know, as long as he is a little bit careful, he can maintain forever. And I think that there's still room for him to further improve his performance. The only problem is that then coronavirus hit 
and he had to close his hotel for yeah for a while. But I'm sure I know that as soon as he resumes, the efficiency gains will come back, and he's going to be able to keep on in, improving uh, improving his performance. But I mean, just imagine, I mean, like there is no such thing as as an investment in which you invest a thousand dollars and you make six times that initial investment over the first year, and then the next year you get another $6,000. That is absolutely unheard of. And then, I mean, one of the things that I would like to say is that there was actually nothing unusual about this property. It wasn't run down. It was a very nice hotel. It was well-maintained. It was well-run. It was very similar in many ways to most of the other hotels that I worked with in Laos. And as a matter of fact, it was very similar to most of the hotels that I work with around the world. The difference here is not in the hardware of the hotel, it's in the software of the owner and the GM. So the reason why they were able to achieve this is because Mr. Ku is a GM and an owner that is really, really on the ball. Out of the 50 hotels that we worked with there in Laos, maybe five of them did something similar to Mr. Kuo. However, I don't think that they were able to achieve the same gains, but they were actually able to achieve a whole lot. Another maybe 20 properties did a few things, but not too many, and about half of them did absolutely nothing. So it takes one dedicated professional to see the opportunity and grab it by the tail. Yep, grab the bull by the horns. And the problem is that that is the the biggest problem that we have is that they are, what stops them is not the money, it's not the difficulty, what stops them is what they have in their head. And, and also, I mean, one of the things that I want to make sure, I want to make clear is that this, this issue is not unique to Laos or to hotels. It basically affects most businesses in all countries. And just to give you an idea, when I started uh, doing this work 23 years ago, I was working with businesses, factories, and then later on with hotels in, in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in North Africa. And when I saw all of these problems, one of the explanations that came to mind is, well, I'm seeing all of these big wasted opportunities because I'm working in developing countries. And so they don't have the best equipment. Probably their technicians are not the very best. And, you know, that is what kind of explains this. However, after doing this work all over Latin America, uh, also got to work in Egypt, and there we saw the same problems, I started working with, uh, surprisingly enough, with UK tour operators. And that gave me the opportunity to start working in the Mediterranean basin, and I worked in a lot of countries in Southern Europe. And so when I started doing this work, I figured, wow, at least now I'm going to see how hotels are supposed to be run properly and run more efficiently. And no, what I saw in Southern Europe is basically they have the same fundamental problems that I'd seen everywhere else, just that their equipment and their facilities were a little bit nicer. And then six years ago, when I moved to Singapore and started working in Singapore, I also even landed a project in Japan in Hokkaido. And if there's one thing that Singaporeans and Japanese are known for is, you know, their attention to detail and their efficiency. So I thought to myself, okay, now finally I'm going to see how a business is supposed to be run right. And guess what? No. It's the same fundamental problems, just that they had much better equipment, 
in much better facilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love the stories like that, and I'm a big adept of, I love books like Checklist Manifesto, you know, what is our problem? Where are we not following the plan? Why are we making these big mistakes where we lose? Sometimes we lose money, sometimes we lose lives. And uh, in that Checklist Manifesto, I don't remember the author, but he used as one of the examples the hospital by how many percentage the death rate in a certain hospital was reduced simply because someone used sanitizer well it was before coronavirus a long time before but yeah here they forgot there they forgot the gloves here they forgot to throw them away all of that mess generated death in in the examples of hotels but i mean it's not just money, it's also resource that is sometimes is finite. And in most of the cases is finite. I wanted to interrupt you for a little bit. I love reading this. The PwC issues the journal called Strategy and Business. And these journals are distributed for free, even though I see here the price is almost 13 bucks. But because they are free, no one takes them. Everybody probably thinks it's a promotional material. But I adore that, uh, this journal. Uh, it's really about st strategy and business and different perks and tricks from prominent authors. So I found a, an article that I was reading this morning, 10 principles for winning the game of digital disruption. I will recite a little piece about that, about optimization and about changing the rules of the game, even though it has nothing to do with the digital at this specific example. The Aravind Eye Hospital in India is one of the most effective cataract treatment centers in the world. It values professional expertise as a specialized asset. Each surgeon treats 10 times as many cataract patients per day on average as a similar surgeon would do in the United States. The hospital whose processes were modeled after those of McDonald's uses every means possible to focus a skilled surgeon's time where it matters most, on the cataract operation. Everything else, including administrative work and referrals of complex cases, is handled by someone else. So that's how placing the special person on their special place, and you know, in our pre-conversation we discussed the feeding of the system for the sake of feeding the system so you're not doing your professional work you're inputting the data in the computer you're running around with the papers this is the loss of productivity as a result also loss of money just in a slightly different context so uh, the question stays the same why don't we see that why don't we implement the checklists why don't we let professionals in a certain sphere, the surgeon should operate. That's all, that's all they have to do. They don't have to communicate with their relatives. They don't have to do the administrative work. They don't have to do uh, supplies and logistics, you know, all of that stuff. So why? It's the same in the resource, take tangible resource, human resource, time resource. Why are we not seeing that? It always amazes me to see how companies don't run as well as you would expect them. You know, I studied engineering and engineering is a very precise science. And I always kind of 
you know, obviously innocently enough, I assumed that when I would go out and working in the real world as an engineer, I would be working with companies and businesses that were really doing their work very, very precisely and very, very well. And what I learned fairly quickly is that that is really not the case. And, and then when I started, started working in resource efficiency, uh, it was confirmed to me on a daily basis that we are nowhere close to being as efficient. I don't like, really like the, the, the word efficient, but I can't think of a much, much better word, but we, we are just so enormously wasteful. Perhaps that, that is a better way of putting it. Because, yeah, I mean, if I was a surgeon and the only thing I did was to you know, cut, cut the cataract, but then the next guy would come and cut the cataract, I would feel like I'm almost a robot on an, on an assembly line. And that would be very efficient, although it would probably be a little bit inhumane. I mean, I'm not too familiar with, with cataracts, but the one thing that I know for sure is that our businesses in general are nowhere close to being as frugal with the resources as they should. And then they end up paying a huge price for it. You know, we pollute needlessly. They earn a lot less money. Just the absolute lack of imagination. But we will get to that. Yeah. Let me give you my theory on why it is that business people don't jump on these opportunities. And one thing that I, I forgot to mention previously is that so far we were talking about mainly about water and energy, but these opportunities are everywhere. And very often, at least in the case of the hotel industry, but also in, in many, many other businesses, is that the financial gains that you can achieve by using materials more efficiently far outweigh the financial savings that you can achieve through water conservation and energy conservation. Just to give you an idea, uh, years ago, I worked uh, in a hotel in Egypt. It was a 250-room hotel. And one of the problems that we found there is that uh, this is on the Red Sea coast. It's really, really hot. Most of their tourists were British, and so they had to be hydrating nonstop so they wouldn't collapse. And so the hotel would provide drink bottle, drinking water to their guests nonstop. And the water that they would give them were these really small little little bottles, uh, like 33 cubic centimeters. And what happens with, with any product is that the smaller the packaging, the more expensive the, the product, because you're not paying for the value of the water, you're paying for the value of the bottle. And then, you know, whatever profits, you know, the water is free, basically. What we did is that we looked at their numbers and we found out that they were spending an absolute fortune in these little bottles. And what we did is we proposed to change the format of the water they were giving to their guests. So using dispensers, using water that comes from these big 20-liter refillable jugs, but that can be served in carafes by, by a waiter or by somebody working in the bar. And just by doing so, they were able to save enough money to cover the salary of 60, 60 of their line staff, just by changing the format of the drinking water given to their guests. That's, that's something that I want to make sure that I make clear. Here, we're not just talking about energy and water. Yeah, energy and water is a big issue, but big opportunities are everywhere. Why is it that hoteliers really don't jump on this and business people in, in general don't jump on this because the way I see it is that there are absolutely no barriers to doing this. The measures are straightforward, I'm not talking about things which are very complicated. You can put them in place almost immediately, certainly less than a month. They don't cost that much money and they 
will give you a return on investment that you will never get anywhere else during the course of your life. Not only that, but especially in the, in the case of, uh, of hotels, is that it doesn't have a negative impact on the quality of the service that you provide to your guests. So just to make clear, because a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, you're going to give them a shower that just kind of dribbles a little bit of water and then your guests are not going to be happy. No, we're, we're not talking about reducing the quality of the guest experience. We're just cutting out the needless waste. And for me, one of the best examples that you can be extremely sustainable and still provide a wonderful experience to your guests is, again, Nikoi. Just to stick with the same example. Nikoi has 90% occupancy year-round, and they've been doing that for the, at least the past six years. And 90% occupancy is unheard of. And on top of that, they spend nothing in marketing. 20% of their guests are repeat guests. Two-thirds of their guests come to Nikoi from word-of-mouth recommendations. And when you look at uh, TripAdvisor recommendations, they are beyond stellar. So yeah, they don't give their guests air conditioning and they don't give them a minibar. But the other things that they do right far outweigh the slight inconvenience that a guest may feel because I don't have a minibar in, in my room. Not only that, but there have been lots of studies that show that sustainable hotels actually produce better guests. And, and, and the reason for that is, first of all, truly sustainable hotels really pay attention to detail. So that means that everything works better than in a conventional hotel. Then second of all, these properties, they have a very close connection to the local environment, but also to the local culture and to the local environment. So the guests who go there end up having a much richer experience than a guest that just goes in a conventional hotel where you, know, you go to the pool, you go to the beach, you go to the restaurant, and that's kind of it. And then also something which is extremely important is that truly sustainable uh, hotels really pay very close attention to their staff. They treat their staff very well. The staff feel that they have a stake in the business. They feel like they're working in a family and it makes a world of difference because if you have happy staff, that makes for very, very happy guests. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a hotel where they had unhappy staff, you know it, you feel it immediately and it just ruins the whole, the whole experience. Totally. So what happens though, in, in theory, there shouldn't be any barriers, but in reality, there are many, many, many barriers. But the problem is that all of those barriers are mental barriers. One of the most common things that I hear or that I feel is that you know, resource efficiency and sustainability is not really in the DNA of hoteliers. Normally, a hotelier, when you tell them, okay, you know, what can you do in order to boost profit? Uh, they will think, okay, more guests, higher prices, sell more wine, sell more beer, uh, sell more food or more excursions. And they will never think that they can actually achieve a greater profit profitability through resource efficiency. Not only that they would be able to achieve greater financial benefits, but that those benefits are a hell of a lot more reliable because and, you know, these are things that you are doing yourself. You are the one who is, you know, fixing this and that in order to make it more efficient and less wasteful. You don't have to have to wait for more guests to come in through the door in order to bring you more, more, more money. So that, that is a problem. A lot of uh, hoteliers, they just don't have this in their DNA. And then 
also another big problem is that tackling all of these issues, these resource efficiency issues, require the, the hotel staff to look after a lot of very small problems. So it's not just one big central issue like let's change the boiler, let's install solar panels on the roof. They have to be looking at many things and that is a little bit tricky. Then another barrier that is enormous, and this is something that I hear all the time, is that they they just don't have time. People who work in the hotel industry, they're always 100% busy. And it really is a pity because if you don't have the time to invest or to make changes that will give you an enormous return on investment and that will make you enormously profitable, then perhaps you're just not using your time wisely. There are two more standard barriers. One of them is that it requires change. And change is always hard. I mean, I hate having to change my computer or the software. And the same thing happens with hoteliers, and I fully understand that. And then the other barrier, which is actually I heard it from a GM that I was talking to, is that she says, this, this GM told me, yes, I know that all of these things are very important and that they will give me a lot of money. And, but, but the problem is that they're just not fun. I, I don't like doing this, you know. I would much, much rather worry about other issues like the local communities or the turtles on the beach. But looking at resource efficiency is just not very sexy and it's not a lot of fun. Well, the solution is delegate. Delegate what you don't like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and that is the one thing that I don't understand is that I know that change is hard. I know that things like this may not be fun for most people. And I know that most of them don't have time, but yes, you are the owner. You are the one who takes the big decisions, but then you delegate to the people who work below you. And whether they like it or not, whether they think it's fun or sexy or not, they still have to do it. So yes. As we say here, there is a famous for centuries, beloved two Slavic questions. Who is to blame and what to do? We almost always know who to blame, but we always omit looking even into the direction. So what shall we do now? And so the question is what to do with all, the, all this massive piece of information, how to improve? Yeah. Well, there are many things that they should do. And actually, I think that none of them are very, very hard. Well, perhaps a few, but as you said, you can always delegate. Is the first one is you have to embrace change because you have to realize that if there's one constant in business and in life, it's change. So you might as well get used to it. And if you don't really like change, as a, as a GM, as the owner, you know you can you can force the other ones to do the dirty work for you. The second thing, uh, thing to keep in mind is that sustainability is enormously profitable, and it's really not as hard as mo- most people seem to believe. It's also high impact and it's something that you can do fairly quickly. The third point is you have to make the time to be able to implement all of these improvement measures. And so either you delegate or, you know, if nobody in your organization has the time to do it, then hire somebody who will have the time. Like some of the most efficient properties that I've worked with are the ones that have a sustainability officer whose sole responsibility is to look after all of these issues. And believe me, that is probably the one employee that yields them the biggest savings and the biggest, has, has the biggest impact 
on the financial performance of the property. And if you can't delegate and you don't like doing it, clench your teeth and do it because you have to keep in mind that this will give you actually funds that will allow you to do the things that you really like to do. If what you would rather do is save the turtles, you know, thanks to resource efficiency, you will have the money to be able to do that. Or if you want to go to Las Vegas, you'll have greater profits, you'll be able to you know, go on a holiday. Another thing which is very important is that if it's not in your DNA and you know nothing about sustainability, then find, find the information. There's an enormous amount of information on resource efficiency, sustainability, in just about any business in the world. And if you don't want to do it yourself, then hire somebody who can guide you through the process. Right. Then another thing which is really important, which is something that we talked about during the presentation, is think about sustainability at the beginning of, of new projects. That is where it can really have the biggest impact. And, and unfortunately, very often, your architects and your designers, they may very be very good, but they're not the ones who are paying your utility bills at the end of the day. So their main focus is on producing something that meets your expectations, something that looks wonderful, but not necessarily something that will be efficient to operate and that will save you a lot of money. Then a very important thing is to start with the simple things. Very often I go into a property and the, f the only thing they've done is install solar panels all over the place, which was a very big project. And they failed to pick the simple improvement measures that would have had a much, much bigger impact than solar panels. Solar panels are wonderful, but actually they don't produce that much energy. Just by you know, making sure that the AC units are operated properly in guest rooms or in public areas, you can save a lot more energy than you ever will with your solar panels. You know, make your people accountable. Measure your performance and make sure that they understand what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, and that you're keeping an eye on your performance and, and that they will be accountable for them. And then certainly last but not least is involve your staff in the process because your staff are the ones who, they're the ones who know your property best. They are the ones who can come up with the best ideas. And if you manage to get them excited about your project, you know, the results can be absolutely enormous. They will get the sense of ownership also. It's not like you are managing them, but they are owning the processes. And I saw it, it, it is working extremely well in certain places. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, having great engineers, great managers, you know, GMs and all of that is fantastic. But at the end of the day, what really makes a difference is the staff. Is how committed the staff is. Yes, committed. And, and also, I mean, they have to understand that they have a stake in this. And um, you can actually make sustainable, sustainability relatable to them. You can, um, whatever it is that the hotel does to reduce its operating costs to be a little bit more sustainable, these are things that they can also do at home. Uh, and then, then they understand that the hotel is not just doing this, you know, to make a lot of money, which is not always the case or generally not the case, but, you know, by sharing all of this information with their staff, uh, basically, you're, you're helping them be part of the, part of the solution. Right. At the end of every interview, I ask my guests to suggest a book or a movie, give some sort of a recommendation or piece of advice, maybe a quote for the listeners to go explore further on by themselves. What would be your suggestion? My recommendation is, you know, just don't wait to change and embrace sustainability. Because what happens is that 
there's just no more time to keep on postponing this. And it's just so enormously profitable. It just makes it so easy, so profitable. It just makes so much sense that not jumping on this is absolute madness. And not only is it madness from a business standpoint, but it's also madness from an environmental standpoint because we are destroying our earth and our future in the process. Okay. So that is my general recommendation. And my book recommendation is a wonderful book that I just finished reading actually a couple of days ago. It's called We Are the Weather. And it's written by an American author. I forget his name because it's a very unusual name, but I'm sure that you can Google it. Yeah. And it is a book about sustainability, but it's not your conventional book about sustainability that makes kind of a logical pitch as to why we should embrace sustainability. The pitch that he makes is a very emotional pitch. Basically, ask the same kind of questions that I've been asking in my work is that how is it possible that this is so important and it's such a big impact and it can do so much good or so much damage to our future and to the future of, of our children? And how is it possible that we are unable to take action? Even if we are convinced, there are, there are many people in this world, uh, including a lot of my friends who, who know that you know, climate change is, is a reality, but they're still unable to come to grips with the fact that we all need to contribute to the solution. And so yes, they are concerned about climate change, but they end up doing absolutely nothing. So this is really a lovely book, a lovely book and a very unconventional climate change book. Yeah, we are, we are the we better. Are the weather. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. fantastic. We will put it in our show notes. Well, Patricia, I really enjoyed discussing this topic with you and hearing your point of view, especially from such a broad range of geographically located hotels and dispersed also industries that you were involved in. And I am walking away with a massive baggage of takeaways. And I hope our listeners as well. Thank you. Well, well and I thank you very much for inviting me and uh, keep up the wonderful work. I think that, you know, there are many stories that similar to mine that need to be told because unfortunately, I think that in many cases, uh, just people don't realize that it's not as difficult as, as it seems and we can all play a big part in, in making things better. Right. I so much appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I hope you loved listening to this episode and you learned something new today and maybe even got inspired to take some action. As always, if you have any questions for me or my guest, Patricio, please don't hesitate to reach to us on LinkedIn. We're both easily approachable and findable there. If you like the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe, share on your social media, leave a review on a platform you're listening on. Reading your review will make me over the moon happy. If you leave a review on, podca on our podcast, uh, Podchaser page, I will reply to you in person, as I always do. By taking your time to give your honest feedback, you will help me improve and you will help other people interested in practical aspects of sustainability to find and discover this channel. You, all, you know that I always suggest some other related episodes, and today I'll go with the book suggestion that I mentioned during our talk uh, 
that is Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gavande. The author shows what the simple idea of the checklist reveals about the complexity of our lives and how we can deal with it. Because the modern world has given us stupendous know-how, yet avoidable fa- failures continue to plague us in healthcare, government, the law, the financial industry, in almost every realm of organized activity. And the reason is simple. The volume and complexity of knowledge today has exceeded our ability as individuals to properly deliver it to people, consistently, correctly, and safely. We train longer, specialize more, use ever-advancing technologies, and still we fail. Atul Gavande makes a compelling argument that we can do better using the simplest of methods, the checklist. In Reverting Stories, he reveals that checklists can do what they can't and how they could bring about striking improvements in a variety of fields, from medicine and disaster recovery to professions and businesses of all kinds. And the insights are making a difference. Already, a simple surgical checklist from the World Health Organization designed by the following the ideas described here in the book has been adopted in more than 20 countries as a standard for care and has been recognized as the biggest clinical invention in 30 years. The book is really great. I read it last year and I still come back to it in my thoughts, in everything I do, in my business and in how I deliver it to the clients. After all, I always invite you to check other related episodes uh, on this podcast, anything that speaks to you. We have a a lot of interesting interviews covering a range of topics, Uh, certification, business operations, finance, um, business models, and so on. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions, or suggest guests or topics that bug you and that you'd like to cover me Uh, you'd like me to cover in the future. I'd also love to mention that we now have a YouTube channel where most of our conversations are sitting in the form of the video, so you can even virtually meet the guests. We also have a Facebook group and a LinkedIn page where we all can engage and exchange ideas. Join in. This was Sustainability Explored, episode number 55, season 5, and me, your host, Anna Chashna. Thank you for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Take care, stay sustainable. Bye-bye.